Agriculture is at the heart of our food system. As our population grows, so too does our dependence on it to feed and nourish us. And farming sustainably will be crucial to people and the planet. But sustainable approaches like regenerative agriculture require planning and patience. So is there a way of using technology to speed up and support the process? I'm Matt Eason and welcome to the Food Fight podcast from EIT Food, exploring the greatest challenges facing the food system and the innovations and entrepreneurs looking to solve them. So there's a sense that industrial agriculture and innovation has gone too far at the expense of our land. So in a way, you can understand why some farmers might have some reservations about using new technology. But surely we can use technology to farm better and in a more natural way. Well, to help us understand this area better, we're joined by two sustainability heroes with a taste for tech. First of all, I'd like to welcome the founder of Hummingbird Technologies, Will Wells. Hummingbird Technologies is an imagery analytics provider optimising satellites, drones, robots and planes to help farmers see complex problems within their fields and work towards becoming more regenerative. Thanks for joining us today, Will. It's great to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Will. And joining us from Switzerland is our second guest, Marina Martin-Curran, who's the sustainability manager for one of our rising food stars at EIT Food, Vive. So Vive developed technology for applications in agriculture and medicine, helping improve health outcomes of people and plants. Thanks for joining us today, Marina. Thank you for having me. Great stuff. So... In a previous episode, we were talking to Patrick Holden, who's someone who's really seen as a pioneer of the regenerative and sustainability movement. And he, while he was on the podcast, he kind of had this great phrase where he said, we're at the threshold of a whole new chapter in the global history of farming right now. And I just wanted to kind of get your top line thoughts. Is that something you agree with? And if so, why? And maybe, Will, we can start with you. Do we think we're at a threshold? I would have to wholeheartedly agree with Patrick there. Look at what's happened in the last five years. It was unthinkable at the time to imagine that we would now be in a world in 2021 where climate innovation is out on farm, novel farming systems are being scaled up, including cellular protein, controlled environment agriculture, drones, satellites, robots. These are all things that are not commonplace but are being used and it's an incredibly exciting time both for us in technology but also at the biological end where we're seeing as much innovation. Amazing and Marina is that something you agree with? Absolutely I think that we're at the threshold also because young people are getting interested again in farming and that's really key because they've got the skills they're hopefully digital natives they understand about robotics and ai they're excited to apply this tech in the field and get their hands dirty and do you kind of get the sense that previously there might have been a resistance towards technology in the agriculture sector and maybe now that's opened up I don't even know that there was a resistance per se. I mean, maybe with an old guard of farmers, then yes, it's like we need to just farm the way we've always farmed and the way my father taught me and that sort of thing. But I think also because the technology just wasn't there. So now that it is, I would say even the older generation have a chance to get on board with it. And Will, do you think the older generation are starting to adopt this? I think so. And... 
What's interesting is that lots of people talk about a stereotypical old McDonald version of farm adoption, as if there's some older generation that are blocking technology being rolled out. I would disagree there because, as Marina said, a lot of the times the technology didn't really work. Mm. And if it did, there was this question hanging in the background, well, who pays? And so a lot of the adoption that we're seeing now is consumer-led, as Marina said, or it's government-inspired or government-subsidized. And the technology, quite frankly, is now giving that ROI on a sort of unit hectare basis that it perhaps didn't do five years ago. So we're seeing the right ingredients in the mix, public, consumer and technological to kind of really leapfrog us forward. It's great to know that this space is really developing. That's really encouraging. And Will, you know, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about Hummingbird and how your technology or technologies actually work? Sure. So Hummingbird is a remote sensing and artificial intelligence platform for agri-food. And what that means is that we use satellite data predominantly to measure and monitor sustainability across very large agricultural areas. And at an algorithm and model level, what we're really interested in is in looking and picking up changes in soil practices. So for example, a switch to conservation tillage, improved biodiversity at a crop rotational level. So we can tell what's in what field and over time. So if we get given a land parcel, we can see what's been planted every year for the last few years the introduction of cover cropping and other metrics that are sort of globally acknowledged to be regenerative by switching practice. And our job, rather like an audit, is to pinpoint when they happened and to give independent objective evidence from space in a very cheap way that certain actions took place. And this is super important for for governments, for consumers or any large corporates that want to monitor their supply chain. Wow. Okay. And I I know as well that you're sort of working with lots of scientists remotely across the globe. I mean, what's the reasoning behind that and how are you all working together? Well, there's a lot of science under the hood in farming. And whether you're developing a deep learning based classification model, I mean, that in layman's terms just tells you what signature each crop is giving off so that you can look at Germany and pinpoint what's in what field everywhere. That's an AI science endeavor that gets turned into code, that gets turned into software. But if you're embedding agronomic or bioinformatics insights into the software as well, you you really need to know the farming know-how, the agronomist know-how, and possibly some plant pathology as well. So we have to work really closely with academics, research scientists to get that know-how into our system. Got it. Okay, that's super clear. Thanks very much, Will. And Marina, over to you. So can you tell us a bit about Vive and the role that you play in the company? Sure. So Vive was started back in 2012. The research and development has taken a long time to get to where we are, and it's really only in the last year that we've been able to commercialise. And what we have been focusing on is the plants rather than the human side. Mm -hmm. We have a device which the easiest way to explain what it is, is like an ECG for plants. So it's a box with electrodes that you can then poke into the plant 
and you have two electrodes in the stem, top and bottom of the stem. What, the bottom one is essentially the earth. And what you're measuring in millivolts is the electrophysiological signals of plants. So, for example, when a caterpillar chews on the leaf of a plant, then a signal is moving from where that caterpillar is all the way along the nerves nerves in quotes, all the way along the leaves through the stems so that very quickly, literally within a matter of seconds, the whole plant knows that it's being attacked by a caterpillar. Wow. Okay. So how do farmers work with that? What's the real benefit for them? What's the use? So we have these signals. And like Will, we're able to then apply machine learning and build algorithms for different types of signals for different types of crops. So we have what we call crop stressor pairings. So for example, tomatoes and a drought stress signal. So each type of signal will be slightly different if the plant is under stress because it needs water or because it's deficient in a particular nutrient or because it's being attacked by a fungus or a nematode or an aphid. All those signals will be different. So does that then mean that you can use resources more efficiently, effectively? Exactly. So we then are able to provide a grower, whether it's an outdoor farmer or indoor horticulture, controlled environment growing, with this information for the farmer to then be able to make decisions. So it's like an early warning system because we can actually see the stress in the signal before you see it appear on the leaves. So we know well before the leaves are turning brown or spotty or whatever it is that there's a problem. And so the grower is made aware of that and they can then make a decision as to what they need to do. More water, a particular nutrient in the fertilizer rather than applying the whole array of fertilizer, using pest control in a much more efficient manner, especially, you know, in light of, obviously, this whole conversation is going to be about regenerative agriculture, but especially in that light of trying to be much more efficient and reducing use of pest control. Got it. I, I'm amazing. I, I just, I love this space. There's so much amazing technology coming out of here. Just, it's incredible to even be speaking to you about all of this. And question to both of you then. So, where do farmers start using this technology on their journey? So whether or not they're sort of conventional farmers looking to move to, say, for example, regenerative or already regenerative farmers, where do you kind of start with this tech? And I was just thinking about one of the things you said as well, where you were talking about some of the bigger players. Is this sort of technology just for big players or can this kind of go slightly for smaller farmers as well? So, Will, what do you think? Where would a farmer sort of say, you know what, I want to start using hummingbird technologies? So we work with many farmers, but not necessarily directly. We tend to work with governments, water companies, ag input companies, but big businesses that are farmer facing and even carbon trading platforms where farmers or big businesses can register a project and Hummingbird's job is to independently verify what was going on. We did actually start at the beginning of our journey working with farmers. It's, it's quite difficult when you're measuring sustainability to navigate the whole who pays thing. And what we found was that we had better traction working with very big businesses and then through them farmers, but trying to influence some B2B value rather than 
you know, dumping loads of technology on the farmers and saying, hey, guys, can you pay? So but, but there tends to be benefits that flow in all directions. It's just that's our channel and it seems to be working so far. OK, got it. So maybe going through other people to then influence the farmers is obviously yielding better results for you. And, and Marina, I could see you sort of nodding away while Will was talking. Has that been your experience? Yeah, it sounds very familiar. It's really difficult that, you know, new technology has a cost inevitably and farmers always, always have very tight margins. So even if they're really keen and even if we drop the price to ridiculously low, it's still a cost that they weren't anticipating in dispersing, as it were. However, because we are still in an R&D phase, we can work with farmers and try and find grants and try and find money elsewhere. And it's really valuable for us, of course, to work directly with farmers. To give you an example, we had a local farmer in the office yesterday. His farm is literally 200 metres from the office. And he's really quite an amazing guy because he continues to be diversified. He's inherited his parents' farm. He's got asparagus and strawberries and apple trees and vines, all sorts of things. And he's trying to make it work, as he says, with a mixture of low tech and high tech. And he's really keen to work with us. He hasn't got the money, but we're applying for a grant to work with him. And in the interim, we've already put one of our devices in his asparagus crop because we're really keen to know what an asparagus signal looks like. (laughs) I'll be all. (laughs) If I can add to to Marina, and by the way, I'm a massive fan of Vive and this whole notion of like early warning systems because so when Hummingbird started, we actually did a lot of research into can we spot pre-symptomatic disease using a hyperspectral sensor on a drone? And the short answer was yes, but it was very expensive. And basically we couldn't scale it because it was operationally so difficult to put, you know, a 50,000 pound camera on a drone and then fly it around the field. But you could see early stress, pre-symptomatic, and not that the human eye could see it, let's say up to 21 days before it became visible. Now that is a game changer for a farmer or an agronomist or anyone that's spending tens and tens of thousands on what is basically chemotherapy and reactive. So the equivalent is sort of, you know, immunotherapy, it's proactive and your unit costs for chemicals could come down so significantly that I can see this, you know, being adopted at huge scale once those use cases are working. Could you explain that, Will? So you're saying you think that will be a game changer. Why does that having that three week 21-day pre-warning, why is that such a big deal for a farmer? I think at a high level, some chemical inputs are put on as a sort of preventative, and that tends to happen as a blanket spray. Some are put on as a reactive spray, and that tends to happen in a slightly more targeted fashion. But by and large, like the crop cycle is so short, and you risk so much in terms of crop failure, that your best solution often is to pile on chemistry, which obviously builds up resistance, which obviously means more chemistry and, and obviously higher input costs. You get stuck in this invirtuous sort of loop. Now, being able to detect something early, like in cancer or like in any other human medicine, is just a game changer in terms of patient outcome, plant outcome, and overall biodiversity, I think. But 
Marina, I probably answered your question wrong. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, and funnily enough, the conversation yesterday with the asparagus farmer was, of course, uh, prevention is better than cure. He loves that we're working on the early diagno- diagnosis of disease. However, he said, even if you give me a week's warning, it's too late because I don't want to be applying a curative treatment to the plants. He said, I just don't want them to get sick at all. I need right. to be going into the season with a healthy crop. So for him, focusing on the drought stress and the nutrient stress algorithms is a better option because he says, if you can get the nutrient balance right and build up the immunity, to use that analogy, build up the immunity of the plant and have a robust plant in spring and early summer, that's much better. Mm. Okay, got it. Thank you. And I suppose we're already starting to answer some of this in terms of the next question. But you know, what's the big advantage in tech in, in the agri space? And is it that you can really radically scale up sustainable and regenerative farming so much quicker because of technology? And I ask that question because you know, we've had a number of people on the show who talk about regenerative and are starting to look towards tech and having this sort of merge of the kind of the traditional, let's say, and you know, the high tech seems to be working. And is that something that you'd agree with, Will? I think that in parts of agriculture, you're beginning to see like such obvious return on investments that technology is being adopted, but it tends to be fastest in areas where, you know, it's difficult to access labor and therefore like anything to do with automation. Think about robotic harvest picking of soft fruit. Now, a human is faster and is probably better But in some areas, it's a bit like Ocado when they started playing around with robotics 10 years ago. In some areas, like it's just a no brainer. I think that we're beginning to see like pockets of the sector really benefit, but we're still lagging in other parts. So it's all to play for. But thankfully, there are some nice success stories now. Thanks, Will. And Marina, do you see that you can blend sort of regenerative, let's say, and and technology really successfully? Yes, I mean, I think we're all still, relatively speaking, at the beginning of the journey and convincing the end user is, uh, you know, that's still the hard part. I think that, as, as Will have said, working B2B with the big companies, with the Nestle's and the PepsiCo's and so on, is a brilliant way of promoting this to the end user. The other thing is that there is a large part of agriculture which is high value crops where they will try lots of new things, where they are innovative and they have the money to spend. I mean, I'm thinking of almond growers in California, tomatoes indoors in the Netherlands, and of course, cannabis, which is on everybody's lips, if I dare say, in Switzerland at the moment. So that's where, you know, companies like ours can focus. And then if you get traction in the high value side, then you can, you know, democratise it eventually. Okay. And, you know, we were talking to our agricultural manager on a previous episode about this, and he was talking about regenerative and how actually moving from traditional farming to regenerative already requires like a mindset shift And, you know, there was a lot of confusion about where you start there. I'm just wondering, does layering over 
like a technology element then make that nervousness even greater with farmers? And how do you overcome that? You know, Will, what's been your experience? I hope that technology would help it. So for example, imagine you're in a supply chain with a food producer and a food retailer. And like ultimately your product is being sold, you know, at the supermarket checkout desk and to a consumer that might now reward you if there's proven traceability and sustainability of that product. So what we're hoping is that technology can enable, you know, farmers that do make the switch to selling their produce at a premium to those that don't. And we're hoping that that same framework gets adopted with government subsidies or unregulated carbon markets. So the idea is that technology can facilitate an economic benefit flowing from consumer to the producer on account of something that's green. But you can't measure that and you can't monitor that without technology because food production happens at such a vast scale, it would be impossible to do it otherwise. Okay, and Marina, any thoughts? One of the things that companies like ours have to do is have consumer trust, have the confidence of the consumer that we're not adding to the problem. So, for example, we've been conducting a life cycle analysis. It's taken months. It's way more complex than I ever thought it would be. But a life cycle analysis of our device and what goes into our electronics and our box and our electrodes and how much, what the carbon footprint of it is, and also once you plug it in, how much energy it consumes. So if we're able to say to a, a farmer who's yeah, moving to regenerative agriculture and he says, yeah, but if I'm adding technology, then am I adding you know, more carbon into the into the story? Is it going to be using a lot of energy and so on? And if we can say no or very little or it's an insignificant cost compared to the benefits that you'll get from having a higher yield or less pre-harvest loss, which is, mm-hmm. you know, two sides of the same coin, then that can really help in their decision-making. That's interesting. I'd never even considered that element, actually, What that by introducing technology, actually, farmers might be thinking this introduces even more carbon into what they do. So it's good that, you know, for, on both your sides, it feels that there is an economic and an environmental benefit to going down this route, which is great. And so, okay, so if you can kind of convince farmers one way or another via whether it's economically, you know, the consumer demand environmentally that this is the right thing to do. Where do they start then? So, you know, I'm a regenerative farmer. I want to introduce this new technology. What's the first step? I mean, and I guess you'll probably have a view on your own technologies, but I'm just interested to hear how you kind of overcome this with farmers. So, you know, Will, what's the first step for a farmer to kind of introduce hummingbird technology into their farming processes? So all farmers that I've ever met experiment and they're all business people. So you have to start with the basics and what works for your farm might not work for someone else's farm and and vice versa. So experimenting with the introduction of certain regenerative agricultural practices should begin with your own sort of mindset and Maybe you'll introduce cover cropping on one field. Maybe you'll switch tillage practices on another. Maybe you want to set aside part of your land or change the land use. And all of those things can capture 
an economic benefit. So my best encouragement to anyone is attend events like Groundswell, where you can actually see a lot of these demos live. Watch what your neighbors are doing. Speak to your supply chain customers and see if there are kind of rewards or experimentation programs that are out there that you can take part in that actually make it business sense as well as agronomic sense. But I think, you know, thankfully, we're now in a world where all of the things that I've mentioned are going on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you kind of, farmers need to be exposing themselves or exposed to this kind of tech and, and getting advice from, you know, the people who were already going there before. And Marina, what about you? So how does the farmer start using Vive Tech? Uh, yeah, give us a call. Um, yeah, <laughs> so we are pretty generous in terms of organising trials and rental agreements rather than sales in order to get the farmer on board and get them to see for themselves what it can do. It's been actually really a wonderful journey for us to see how farmers respond to the data that they see, which initially looks like a pretty horrible signal and difficult for people to interpret, but which we are working on to have a more user-friendly interface. But they interpret the signal themselves and see what they see that the plant is communicating. And it's like a paradigm shift in terms of how a farmer perceives their crop. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a farmer. I have worked on farms, on dairy farms. And obviously, I know how fond a farmer is of their livestock, but I've never really had a feel for how fond they are of a crop Mm. but yeah it's their livelihood so if they see that the plant is stressed then they want to do something about it and then of course you have word of mouth and on-farm trials where you can bring farmers to come and have a look we're doing a town hall in a couple of weeks time here in Switzerland where we've invited about 50 local farmers and vineyard owners and hoping that yeah we can get the message across in French and uh, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, yeah and just get some people on board to try it and then I think it will hopefully trickle down okay so maybe sort of yeah starting small and then yeah trickling down I like that and does education need to really feature in here or something a bit more formalized for farmers in terms of like sustainable farming and technology and you know how does that even work you know so it's great that this technology is out there and it's available and it's great that people can see it working but how do farmers get educated and really up to speed on this stuff you know are agronomists up to scratch already on these sorts of things so how do we go about better educating farmers to use this tech what do you think well i think most farmers are aware at least of all of the science content that's been mentioned today. I think it's important as well to kind of recognize where we sit in history and that there's an an amazing opportunity for food and agriculture to be part of a a sort of decarbonized world. And it's not like other sectors, energy and transport or sort of the fossil fuel sector that is all stick and no carrot. I think everyone I know in farming has clocked that there is this enormous potential for responsible food production to become a climate positive exercise. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that many farmers that don't consider it their responsibility to society for things like food security. And I, I dare I say, most of them now consider, 
you know, habitat restoration and biodiversity as key parts of that. So I'm pretty hopeful for farmers, more farmers getting involved and the ones that are the first adopters really seeing the benefits now. So you think that they farmers naturally embrace this kind of change because they think that it's the right thing to do? I think I think in many places, yes. Like it, it is a tough, tough industry with very thin margins. And we all know, you know, that problems like weather greatly outweigh kind of, you know, smaller things that you can do to impact production like regenerative ag. So I think within the context of it being a very tough industry, I think in the very long term, people acknowledge that they want to be part of a solution and not the problem. Okay, great. And Marina, do you, I can, again, I can see you nodding. Do you, you obviously agree. I mean, do you think there's a way to accelerate this education process for farmers, perhaps? Yeah, two things come to mind. One is the story that your guest last week gave, Philip, on the peach farmers. And I think stories like that are becoming more and more prevalent in the media. I don't know if it's general, what, what media I'm reading, but I've certainly read similar stories recently. So that will help to accelerate this thought process of, oh, wow, if I can increase my yield by 25% within a year, then I'd be crazy not to try to reduce my inputs and dramatically rethink what kind of fertilizer I'm putting on the ground. The other thing, of course, is sitting in Switzerland, I have a very different perspective Swiss farmers are a very powerful voice here, and there were two votations earlier this year that resulted in a double non. Both votations were to do with environment and sustainability and reducing inputs. One was in order to improve the quality of the water table, and the other one was to dramatically input, reduce inputs in farms, including buying in external forage and that you should be self-sufficient in forage for the livestock that you keep. But the double norm was not because farmers are against change or against sustainability per se. It was that the, certainly the farmers that I spoke to said that it went too far too quickly with no reasonable alternatives being given. The other side of the argument is, of course, there are alternatives. Everybody knows that there are. You just need to go out there and get them. But they are more expensive and they're not necessarily as efficient. So we feel that we can support those farmers in that transition, that if they have to start using some novel biocontrol, biostimulant, that you know we can support them to see when and how much they need to apply it, where they need to apply it and get the results that they want. Perfect. Thank you. And I want to talk about the future in a second, but I pick up on something you said there, Marina, about going too far. And this, I think this is one of the things that constantly plays on people's minds in this space, maybe with farmers, or maybe that's not actually true. But is there a worry that we can use too much tech and we can take things too far. So is there is there a potential negative side effect? You know, Will, you were talking at the beginning of the show about uh, the fact that you can kind of over-mechanise and actually that might not be the right solution. So is there a kind of a potential trap that we might fall into if we kind of apply too much technology? Uh, of course. But if you, and, and this is not to be too cynical, but 
we've been debating elms and what will happen for years and years, but nothing's really happened yet or nothing's happened at scale in sort of absolute clear policy terms. So there's still a lot of talk about the role of technology and a switch to more sort of regenerative subsidy-based farming in Europe, but we're still waiting for, for some very big moves to happen. Ditto in the US, in spite of lots of corporates kind of piling in and testing things. And just to give you one example, you get carbon purists that argue, oh, we have to measure every single square meter of a field and measure soil organic carbon and send it to a lab. Now, that would be amazing if it was practical and if it wasn't like monstrously expensive. And then you have at the other end of the scale that says, well, it's just principles. And I'm Microsoft, I'll buy a carbon credit if someone is trying to be more regenerative and they abide by certain frameworks. And I think that that last approach obviously is vulnerable to everything from greenwashing to fraud to you know everything in between. But at least it acknowledges that we're in a crisis and let's do something about it and let's get this thing moving. And technology is really a tool to do all of that. I don't think it's a blocker. So long as it works, it's a tool to accelerate adoption mm-hmm. or to facilitate an easier or more cost-effective transition. And it's not something that stands in the way. I think governments and capital markets and agriculture being very tough are probably bigger barriers than technology. Marina, what's your view? I mean, can it go too far? And actually, is this just something that everybody needs to adopt? Well, just bringing it back to a really practical level and experience that I've had recently speaking with growers is them saying, oh God, another dashboard, another sensor, more data. I spend half my morning looking at screens rather than being out in my greenhouse or in the field. So I think we have to make this technology easy to adopt. I think that we are a lot of players in the market, if I dare say that well, that that there's going to be some consolidation amongst the tech companies for sure. And that if we can join up and work together and have APIs that work well, then we're going to get a lot more traction. This is a really important point. Now, six years ago, everyone was worried about having to log into 20 different dashboards. That still exists today, but... As Marina mentioned, software is now integrated with other software through APIs. And like we believe that the entire verification of Regen Ag will happen in the back end. No one will even need to log in at all. It will happen like a credit check, like an audit. And that parcel of data will be verified by another technological tool. And once farmers, customers, buyers, sellers all trust the technology, I don't even think they need to see it. So looking at some really advanced stuff, a friend of mine has mapped 44 million homes in France and created a digital twin of every house. And the purpose is, is to simulate heat emissions being lost and energy savings across the grid. Now imagine you could do that for agriculture, all in a virtual world, and you could simulate all types of scenarios. This doesn't need you know, farmers logging in or sensors on the ground. This is all possible now with technology. And it's it's a sort of big picture thematic breakthrough that we need to sort of move the needle properly. That's amazing. So your view is that potentially 
the technology will get so advanced that it almost then goes the other way that from a farming perspective it's just then super straightforward because they never like to your point they never even see the tech it's just doing everything that's required in the background i think that's right and it just happens and the food production is very opaque but imagine if you were able to map sugar globally or create a digital twin of palm oil and trace every single plant to its consumer product. Now, that is very, very hard. And I'm sure one day it will be possible. But if that was possible, consumers would be able to choose. And once you unlock that sort of traceability problem, then anything's possible. That's amazing. I love that. And Marina, do you feel the same that, you know, technology can advance so far that actually it just makes it super, super easy and super simple for everyone involved? I certainly hope so. I suppose we're at the much more at a micro level as opposed to Will's macro level. So we would still need to have something in the plant unless we were able to capture their signals remotely. That would be incredible. That would be a real advance in technology. But we're certainly working on the next generation of our device, which will be small, you know, a whole, like a size of a, of a mouse, let's say, with electrodes in which will have a battery and it, you'll be able to fix this onto a plant in the middle of the field and you won't need to have cables and solar panels and batteries and so on. And certainly in terms of then giving the minimum amount of data to the farmer to not overwhelm them, but for them to make a decision would be obviously a system of alerts that would come up on a screen or a phone or something and say, you know, be go, no go, um, water, nutrient, whatever it is. So we're not quite able to go Will's way, which is, yeah, totally hands off. I think that's in the nature of our tech. Yeah, and I I don't want to get um, intoxicated on my own singularity vision. And it's it's not meant to sound scary or far-fetched. I think it's probably a long way off. But... Imagine you're a farmer today and you've been farming for 20 years. It's it's all about pattern recognition and the pace of change in the last five years is so much faster than the previous five that all you need to do is follow the curve upwards and then imagine what it will be like in 10 years time. I think I've seen 20 companies or 20 decks in the last month for cellular protein. I didn't even know it existed three years ago. And I know there are hundreds hundreds and hundreds of new startups in that arena out there. So I think big change is possible in a very short space of time. It's not as binary as it will replace livestock. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but it, it might balance it out so that livestock will rise gently in terms of beef consumption and not as steeply as it's been going. And I think it's a sort of, Technology is a crutch, technology is a tool, alternative things as as a substitute, but not so much that it's just a binary switch. I think it's a coexisting dimension that we're going to see. And you just started to answer the one of the last questions I wanted to ask. So, you know, what do you think then are going to be the biggest changes in the world of sustainable agriculture over the next sort of say five to ten years if you say you can kind of see the curve what's coming on the curve for me just to point out a couple of areas so i don't think that vertical farming is going to replace outdoor agriculture i think that a hybrid model will settle in which 
you know, fresh produce growers will transplant things that have been grown inside into the field and the whole system will be improved like therein. There's a massive problem with that subsector in terms of the cost of electricity and the cost to energize an indoor thing, unless you're in hydroponics or bioponics and, and use natural light. But that's a good example of a sector that's disrupting conventional agriculture. It's not going to replace it, but it may well find its sort of value pockets, you know, and for places where there's a high unit economic cost of food imports like the Middle East or you're next to massive urban centres, I can see that technology really marching on and settling in a nice position. But I think it's about coexistence again along the curve not of something kind of completely weird and sort of apocalypse now type. Thanks for your view, Will. And um, Marina, what's your perspective? Where are we heading in the next sort of five to ten? Five to ten years. I think it's this mixture of low tech and high tech of Mm. rediscovering things that the grandparents or great grandparents or I would say even pre-Second World War and the use of heavy use of fertilisers combined with the high tech. We've been talking a lot about urban agriculture, greenhouses, CEA, rooftop greenhouses. But again, I think it's really, we have to remember that we can't live off lettuces and berries. So the focus is going to be on large crops where Will's technology is obviously going to be at the fore and how to get those large crop growers on board because they're going to be the last to adopt regenerative agriculture if you think of the big Canadian wheat fields, for instance. I think it's the most difficult for them, but they have the most to lose and the most to gain. So uh, they're they're the ones that we need to be really engaging with to uh, on trials and experimentation and new hybrids and cultivars that are resistant to drought and disease and so on without having to adopt a GMO or CRISPR. I love CRISPR, <laughs> but Patrick Holden doesn't, so... <laughs> I think we probably need a whole show on CRISPR, actually. Yeah, but uh, what, Marina, sorry, what, what, did you have any, yeah, anything my, to add? I think my last point was going to be to do with meat, and I think that there is this vast array of yeah cellular proteins that is coming on board, as well as obviously developing higher protein content in existing plants like soy and beans and even wheat or rice or whatever. And I definitely think that in five to 10 years time, eating a steak will be a great luxury. Thanks, Marina. And Will, your final thoughts? I think so. And and Marina sort of succinctly talked about CRISPR and gene editing and plant proteins. And I'm not a geneticist, but what I am seeing is the sort of rise of the great biological revolution that's coming on the back of what we've seen, which is a technological revolution. And if you think of the first generation of CRISPR vintage biotechnology companies, they're really just at the start of what is massive. And there's a company in the UK called Tropic Biosciences breeding climate change resistant seeds for sub-Saharan Africa. Amazing or trying to breed a, a variety of banana that won't get a certain disease. And if we're serious about food production, we must also get serious about genetics and the biological potential 
of lots of things that are going on. It can't all be solved by robots and drones. I mean, even I accept that, and that's my day job. Thanks, Will. To go from sort of something serious to maybe finishing up on something a little bit more fun then, I just have a kind of an out there question for you both. So other than your own fantastic technologies, obviously, if you had unlimited funding, you know, what technology would you like to invent right now to help the agriculture industry? Or maybe what technology would you like to see invented to help the agriculture industry? So big question. Who'd like to go first? Marina, any thoughts? I'm thinking of of Africa. We haven't even touched on feeding the world in a developing country context, which is huge and... (laughs) has been ongoing for 60 years in the development arena without coming up with the right answer. I wish I could wave my magic wand. I haven't got the imagination right now to think what that technology would be, but to to wave my magic wand, because if anyone knows about regenerative agriculture, it's an African farmer who can't afford to buy fertilizers and pesticides and needs to be reusing seeds and tubers year on year. So something to help them. Thank you, Marina. And Will, if you had your magic wand, what would it be? If I had a magic wand and a billion dollars, I would invent something that would allow me, rather like sort of Harry at Hogwarts, to to look at a plant or a piece of food and for it to tell me the exact nutritious content or the or how good the taste was. As if I could see taste like I see colour or see nutrition like I can see colour. I think that would be an amazing goggle wand to have fab i think that's the first time we've had harry potter introduced on the show so good (laughs) good effort love it um cool well thank you both so so much it's one of these topics that we could talk about forever and maybe there's a a session where we just need to talk about the future in this space actually but thank you again just before we finish then where can listeners go to find out a little bit more information about you and what your companies do you can go to www.vivent.ch. Great stuff. And Will? Hummingbirdtech.com. And we're across all social media handles. And if you're a regenerative ag farmer or you're doing any experiments in that domain, get in touch because we're always looking for partners and places to test our technology. Thanks, Will. Open invitation there, everyone. So please take everybody up on that. And that just leaves me to say a big thank you to Marina and Will. And thank you, everybody, for listening in. This has been the Food Fight podcast. And as ever, if you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu. Also join the conversation via hashtag EIT Food Fight on our Twitter channel at EIT Food. And if you haven't already, please hit the follow button so that you never miss an episode. That's it for now. See you all next time.